Welcome to SNC's podcast series, SNC Critical Insights. I'm Isaac Wheeler, co-head of the tax group, and with me is Davis Wang, my fellow co-head, and Morgan Ratner. Morgan is a special counsel in our litigation group. She joined the firm from the Office of the Solicitor General in the Department of Justice, where she argued eight cases before the Supreme Court. Today, we're going to talk about INRI Grand Jury, a case that the Supreme Court recently granted certiorari on relating to when so-called dual-purpose communications are afforded attorney-client privilege. And the reason we're talking about it is because the dual-purpose communications at issue were made with the purpose of one, obtaining legal advice, and two, something to do with the preparation of a client's tax returns. And as we'll talk about in a bit, a preparation of a client's tax returns is not considered legal advice. So let's get started. Morgan, do you want to kick us off by giving a bit of background on attorney-client privilege generally? I think that's probably where we should begin. Thanks, Isaac. I think the first thing to know is that when we're dealing with attorney-client privilege in federal court, it's one of those rare areas of federal common law. So the Federal Rules of Evidence, Rule 501, says that the common law as interpreted by the United States courts in light of reason and experience governs a claim of privilege. So we're not working with a particular statute here. We're dealing with kind of evolving common law principles. The basic requirement under that framework for attorney-client privilege is really fourfold. Uh, the first, there has to be a communication. That's pretty straightforward. Um, the second is the communication has to be between the right people. That's on the one hand, an attorney or a subordinate of an attorney acting on his behalf. And on the other hand, a prospective or actual client. The third is the communication has to be for the right purpose for either for generally speaking for securing legal advice, although this is really the factor that's going to be at issue in this case. And the fourth is it has to be in confidence or not waived. If you tell your lawyer something loudly at a coffee shop around strangers, then it's not going to be covered by the attorney-client privilege. And so too, if you know years after a statement has been uh, made, somebody reveals the contents of that statement. And so those are you know the basic requirements. I, I think the other thing that I would note here is that this case is somewhat unusual because the Supreme Court doesn't get a lot of privilege cases. I won't go into a, a long spiel about the collateral order doctrine, but it's difficult to appeal issues like this in light of a 2009 Supreme Court decision called Mohawk against Carpenter that said more or less that attorney-client privilege issues need to wait until the end of a case. They can't be immediately appealable once made. And so even though there are some ways to get these issues up on appeal, um, it's not too common. So this is a pretty important case in the area. Well, one thing, Morgan, um, I think I would want to note, this is Davis, is that it turns out that there's not an accountant-client privilege under federal law, as in some states. Instead, what we have is Section 7525, which extends the attorney-client privilege to communication between basically accountants and taxpayers. So Section 7525 does not really expand the scope of privilege since it just extends that to a, a different set of people. So I think this case would also determine the scope of that privilege, right? Yeah, I think that is right, Davis. And so let's get to the facts of this case. 
The petitioner is a law firm that appears to specialize in helping individuals navigate the tax consequences of expatriation. They have a client and their services include giving legal advice, but also advice relating to the filing of tax returns, whether to file amended returns, how to deal with certain FBAR disclosures, and the client gets audited. As part of the discovery process, the law firm is issued a subpoena to produce certain documents, and the law firm withholds some documents that would be responsive on the grounds that they're privileged. Now, the parties seem to stipulate that at least some of the documents are what is referred to as these dual purpose communications, meaning that the purpose of the communication between the lawyer and client was not solely to receive legal advice. And again, that's because tax return preparation is not considered legal advice. Now, I want to push on that premise in a bit, but for now, let's, let's stipulate that this is, in fact, a dual-purpose communication. Um, so the petitioners argue in district court that the court should adopt a test that has been applied in the D.C. Circuit. And in the D.C. Circuit, in an opinion authored by then-judge, now Justice Kavanaugh, the test for whether dual-purpose communications get privileged is whether obtaining legal advice was a significant purpose regardless of the relative significance of any other purpose of that communication. The district court and then the Ninth Circuit declined to adopt the a significant purpose test. And instead, they apply a test where the dual purpose communication is privileged only if the legal purpose of the communication is more significant than any other purpose. The law firm files a petition for certiorari arguing that there is at least a three-way circuit split. So you've got the DC circuit, which where the test is, is obtaining legal advice a significant purpose. You've got the ninth circuit, was the purpose of obtaining legal advice the most significant purpose? And then apparently the seventh circuit uh, for dual purpose communications, at least as they relate to tax, are never privileged. Now, Interestingly, in a footnote, the petition states, and I'm going to uh, read from the footnote here, the Fifth Circuit has announced that the assertor of the lawyer-client privilege must prove communications were made for the primary purpose of securing either a legal opinion or legal services or assistance in some legal proceeding. It has not, however, elaborated on whether primary means significant, as in the D.C. Circuit, or most significant, as in the Ninth Circuit, end quote. Now, I have to say I was a little bit skeptical of the petition's conclusion on the Fifth Circuit test uh, after reading that footnote, because Davis, we come across this the primary purpose language in the tax space quite a bit. How, how would you interpret the Fifth Circuit's the primary purpose test? I think that's a hard question. I mean, the tax law on the substantive issue has struggled with whether something is a principal purpose or the principal purpose for many decades. And I think it would be fair to say that this is still an area that has caused uh, many practitioners a lot of headache. So I think it's really a difficult question. And hopefully this is a question that the Supreme Court will resolve when it actually takes up this case 
uh, substantively. I, I will note, however, that it would be more than tax lawyers that are going to be watching this case because there are many in-house lawyers that have dual-purpose communications you know, all the time. They are acting not just as the renderers of legal advice, but also sometimes making judgment calls uh, as business matters. So I think a lot of these dual-purpose communications are going to happen uh, in many areas of real life. And so this uh, makes this court case especially important. Yeah, I, I agree, Davis. We've already seen articles starting to be written noting uh, the implications of the case for in-house counsel. So th this one's uh, going to be watched closely by the legal industry. So so back to the case, I have to say, Morgan, I, I found the petitioner's arguments quite compelling. Yeah, I think I agree that they certainly have some good practical arguments. And as I mentioned, this is federal common law, so it's a bit more freewheeling and maybe sometimes a bit more practical than if the court were construing a specific statute here. I would say they probably have three big practical points going for them. The first is that this creates a tough balancing test that courts are being asked to perform that can be a little bit tricky to line up with human nature. This was in some ways then Judge Kavanaugh's point in the DC Circuit case. If a human being does something for reasons X and Y, it's a little hard to parse sometimes. Well, that was really 60% for reason X and 40% for reason Y. Um, and I think particularly with Justice Breyer's departure from the Supreme Court, I'm not sure there are quite as many champions of complex balancing tests left among the justices. Uh, the second concern is that in part because of how hard this analysis is to predict, it could chill communications in a couple of ways if there's really a true one and only primary purpose test. Um, there might be an effort to strip non-legal things from legal analysis or uh, conversely an effort to keep attorneys out of pure tax return issues, basically a, a general push towards siloing legal advice and, and tax advice. And I think the risk of that, of course, is that you might end up with worse results because whoever is, is the advisor there is not really grappling with the full scope of available information. The third concern I'll mention that's hovering a little bit in the background is a sense in some of these cases and, and also in the government's brief in opposition here of almost a tax exceptionalism. Um, the, the Ninth Circuit certainly held out the possibility that there might be a different rule for tax and for other substantive areas. And generally that sort of notion doesn't sit all too well with the Supreme Court. It, it doesn't like to have different rules of the game for different substantive areas. This is something we see come up a lot in patent cases um, from the federal circuit. It's sort of this patent exceptionalism. And I think that there are similar echoes of uh, tax exceptionalism here. I'll just say one thing on the other side, which is the government has some practical arguments too, which is that it's not asking for a document level determination that it's always possible to sort of redact the legal stuff. And so maybe some of these threats aren't as large as petitioner is, is making them out to be. But I'll stop there, Isaac, instead of going on with predictions for this one. It's always disappointing when the when the court eats away at tax exceptionalism because tax is exceptional as we all know. Okay, so let's take a hypothetical. 
And Davis, maybe this is more for you. Suppose a client comes to you asking for advice as to whether or not a particular type of non-US entity is a default corporation or a default pass-through entity for purposes of the check-the-box rules. And if the legal conclusion is that it's a default corp, they want us to help prepare the check-the-box forms themselves, which is an IRS form 8832. So you come to the conclusion that the entity is a default corp, and you send the client an email setting forth the legal conclusion, and you attach to that email a partially filled out 8832, and you're looking for the client to you know, fill in and fill in the places of the form that they have the information on. So is that dual purpose communication? Have you prevented the legal conclusion from being protected by attorney-client privilege by you know, potentially attaching the form to the email? I, I think that's the question, right? For the Supreme Court to decide. Uh, I think what you have shown, Isaac, is that there are routine exercises in what we do, in what clients do, in what probably, you know, every individual or business does that could be treated as dual purpose. And the dual purpose could either mean, depending on which circuit's law you are applying, uh, that it is privileged, or it seems under the Seventh Circuit law that it is not. And that creates exactly the headache that the Supreme Court needs to address. But to echo Morgan's point, this is a difficult area. Uh, you, you have just shown that it's very easy in an everyday communication on a relatively, let's say, not sophisticated question, and at least not a difficult question oftentimes, to have this type of legal conclusion as well as tax return position that are present in the same interaction. And that must be replicated thousands of times every day. And I think that's an area that needs to be clarified. But I also suspect that even if we did have a some standard, it would be difficult to apply it to everyday situations because it really depends on the lens through which you're looking at something. As you expand the scope of things that are at issue, you may see that it's dual purpose. You actually zero in and drill down on one piece or component of that interaction. You may be able to say that this is solely legal or solely tax preparation, but then it may make the standard completely not workable. This goes to what I said before in terms of, is this going to be considered at a document level or sort of in a specific line-by-line -line redactions, right? The example that you just gave, I can imagine a world where the court says, okay, that email has enough uh, of a legal purpose that uh, legal advice is, is clearly at least a significant purpose, and so that is protected. But I could also imagine a world where the court says, look, what you've described there is a piece of legal analysis connected to a piece of tax return solicitation of information and why make a document level analysis there? Why not say that first piece gets redacted, that second piece is discoverable? I think that would be, you know, an excellent outcome in that in that circumstance. And I think that, you know, one practice point maybe is that as Davis said, even if we have clarity on a test, 
but certainly now where this where the test itself is uncertain to the extent you as a lawyer can separate your legal advice from anything that could be construed as non-legal advice and have separate communications for each then maybe it's beneficial even if a little bit inefficient you know to actually separate those communications into multiple communications okay so We've adopted the premise, at least for the purpose of the discussion so far, that filling out tax returns is not legal advice. And I want to be very clear that nothing here should be interpreted as characterizing something as just tax return preparation. Everyone in the tax base, lawyers, accountants, tax return preparers, you know, all, all of this work is incredibly complicated and demanding. So this isn't to elevate legal advice above something else. It's just simply that the privilege only attaches to legal advice. But here's a quote from the Seventh Circuit. And the preparation of tax returns is an accounting service, not the provision of legal advice. And I think that line is a bit blurrier than the court makes it sound. So I've, I've come armed with a few hypotheticals. And I'm, I'm going to ask Morgan and Davis to participate here. So Suppose that a taxpayer is depreciating commercial real estate and they ask what the useful life of the property is. Now, Morgan, you don't deal with this every day, but the IRS publishes a notice on useful life of classes of property and commercial real estate is listed right there as a class. So normally that question would not come to a lawyer and it would be handled by the client's tax return preparer. Is that Legal advice or is that tax return prep? I thought this one was a gimme, guys. I, I really don't know that it necessarily is a gimme. I mean, there are just so many legal conclusions uh, to to every question. I mean, I, I if anything, I want to push back on the notion that we can even sensibly, you know, separate the legal advice and tax return advice, let's say, uh, into, you know, separate emails or separate documents. I think they're very entwined. And as a practical matter, I think it would be very difficult. Yeah, I mean, I think I have I have certainly learned as an advocate not to resist a hypothetical, but but I'm going to do a little bit of it here because I think that comes out very different ways depending on what we're talking about. If someone sends all of her information to her accountant and the accountant prepares a tax return and that tax return includes, you know, a notation about the useful life of the commercial real estate, I think it's pretty hard to say that there's some legal advice there. But if I'm thinking uh, you know, I, I might make an investment in commercial real estate, and it's important to me for tax purposes on what, you know, what's that going to mean in terms of the useful life of the property. And I email my lawyer and say, could you advise on what this is going to be? It might be an easy answer for the lawyer to say, you know, here's the number. But I still think in that circumstance, it's it's probably legal advice. It can depend a lot on the context, right? Because, you know, Morgan, as you say, when someone says, what is the useful life of that property? It depends on whether people actually have decided that the property is actually commercial real estate. That may very well be the question. And if that is the question, that does sound like legal advice to me. Yeah, and maybe this conversation is, you know, illustrating exactly what the hypothetical was supposed to, which is that in all of these questions on any tax return, you know, there is embedded 
a whole number of legal conclusions. And so to try to discern whether something is legal advice or a tax return prep, and I find the Seventh Circuit's you know, bold statement that tax return prep is not legal advice, you know, probably broader than I would characterize. And I have to say now just, you know, sort of zooming out from just the tax base, I have to imagine this, this line is blurry everywhere. So if you have a business transaction where, uh, you know, one of the goals of the transaction or even the primary purpose of the transaction is to come out from one regulatory regime and into another, you know, where does the legal advice stop and the business advice start? I, I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah, I would I would imagine that this cuts across lots of different practice areas. I mean, I imagine that when a submission is made to the government, the submission itself is not privileged, because how can it be? On the other hand, deciding what goes into the submission would involve a lot of legal advice. That's what we do every day. I also think this is an area in which that sort of tax exceptionalism I mentioned before comes up because a lot of these courts are trying to make sure that they don't accidentally create that accountant-client privilege that we know doesn't exist under federal law. And so there's an idea of, well, well, yeah, there might be hard lines to draw between tax return and legal advice, but we have to draw them because we can't let all tax return advice come in because that looks like the exact sort of accountant client privilege that we know we don't have. And so I think that's that kind of prompted some of the more uh, rigorous lines in, the, in this tax area. All right. Well, I've certainly enjoyed and learned a lot from this conversation. Uh, Morgan, you want to take us home? Any final thoughts? Yeah, I just have two quick ones. Um, the first is the government's brief doesn't say directly that it thinks the D.C. Circuit's test is wrong and the Ninth Circuit's test is right. Um, it, this was at the cert stage, and so the government mostly tried to say that these decisions aren't really in tension and the decision below is pretty fact-bound. That's a common move from the Office of the Solicitor General, and it gives the government some space to explore exactly what position it wants to take. And so we don't actually know how the government is going to formulate its test yet. So I, I would say keep an eye out for the government's merits brief here. The second thing I wanted to say, just a little fun aside, is this is actually one of two cases this term involving what I take it you folks called FBARs, or the Report of Foreign Bank and Financial Account Forms. Some of the emails that were withheld here concerned whether and why to file FBARs. And on November 2nd, in a case called Bittner against the United States, the Supreme Court is going to confront a question about fines for the failure to file a required FBAR. Um, it's sort of a quirky question there, but it comes down to whether those fines are assessed per omitted FBAR or per omitted account. So just to make that a little more concrete, the fine is $10,000 and the taxpayer had something like 50 foreign accounts that he didn't report. So for each year he failed to file an FBAR, does he owe $10,000 or does he owe $10,000 times 50, which even as a non-tax lawyer, I think I can tell you equals $500,000. Um, so I, I just wanted to mention that because it's a big year for tax at the court. Yeah, two tax cases in the Supreme Court. Very, very exciting times. All right. Well, thank you for listening to SNC's Critical Insights. For more information about our practice, 
please visit us on the web at www.soulcrom.com. Thank you.